Welcome back to Pops, everyone. This week, Kishore is up again with part two of his message entitled, The Called Ones. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's message. So last time, we were looking at the calling of Matthew. In one verse, we saw how Matthew had previously healed this paralytic man. He wasn't going to hang out with the crowd any longer. He was going to go then because he had a plan and a purpose in his own life for this enemy tax collector called Matthew. Because Jesus, he always, always has a purpose for each and every person here tonight. He had a purpose. He had you on his mind at one point in your own life. He had you on his mind that he was going to reach out to you in a new way, in a unique way, through a unique person that was going to reach you and one day bring you here on a Thursday night to Pops. This is how beautifully detailed God is and how he reaches us. And the enemy, he also has a plan. And it's always a plan to steal, kill, and destroy us. It's never, ever for our good. But praise God that his plan is always greater. His purpose is always greater for each and every one of us. And in a way that only he can do. God, he promises to weave together all the things in our lives that the enemy has brought against us, that God is going to weave all those things together. The good, the bad, the ugly is going to make a beautiful tapestry of all of that. And that tapestry is your life. It's my life. He's saying, hey, look at all these things that the enemy tried, and look how I made them beautiful. And that beautiful tapestry, it always ends in a destination with him, but it only happens if we allow it. And we looked at Romans 8, 28. Last time it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. And we talked about how Romans 8.28 is not a blanket statement. You know, it's not like, oh, hey, everyone, you know, even if you don't know Jesus, even if you don't want to know him, everything's going to work out great for you. No, it's for those who are called according to his purpose, who are following after Jesus. And we ended last week with some pretty difficult questions. Because if Jesus' purpose is for all of us to follow him wherever he leads us, that means that there's a road that he's walking down. And it's up to us what we want to do on that road, right? We can choose to remain right where we are, be like, hey, Jesus, you know, maybe later. And Jesus walks down that road, and we choose not to go with him. Or maybe we start walking with him, and we say, this is too hard. And we stop halfway, and we just kind of stay in the middle. Or maybe we choose to go down a totally different road, all together and just pretend like we're walking down the road that's marked with Jesus' footsteps, that's marked with the cross that's leaving the trail behind as well. We can pretend that we're walking that way, but oh, it's a little easier on this side. It's a little easier to walk down this road, so we don't choose to walk after him. We convince ourselves that we are, but we truly aren't. So as we talked about last week, that tough question is spiritually the same one that we get every time we meet in any type of big C ministry. That question is always, are you in or are you out? Right? When it comes to the kingdom of God, the question is, are you willing to follow this king no matter where he leads? And before we answer that in or out question about the kingdom of God, we need to know what we're actually answering. Because there is no maybe response to that question. When he calls you and says, are you going to follow me in or out? You can't reply maybe. Maybe doesn't get you anywhere. In fact, it's very clear that God will spit out that lukewarm believer. There is no role for lukewarm. You're either all in or all out. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of the kingdom of God we like, which parts we want to follow, which parts we don't like, which parts we don't want to follow. And we talked about last time, and we're going to see again tonight, that that road that Jesus is walking down, that road that he's calling us to follow him down, is a road that calls us to love each and every person that we meet. Every person he has created, that is what that road is going to lead us down. We don't get to choose who we want to love. You know, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it probably till the day I die. If the person has flesh and breath, we are called to serve and love that person. And that's it. That's what we're doing on the road that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is walking. That path of the kingdom of God, that is the rule. You love them. If you see them and they're still alive, you love them. There are no stipulations. There are no, oh, but God, they don't deserve it. Because as a citizen, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God tonight, we love all people all the time. As the sun shines and the rain falls, so does the love of the Father fall on every single person that we see. And that's how we are supposed to treat every person 
that we see. And to do that in word and in deed, that's not easy to do. It's very easy to say, I'm a Christian and I love everyone. Or it's very easy to be like a flower child of the 70s and oh, love and dance and, 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 and prance around, right? But the reality is to do it in a Christ-like way, in word and deed, is very hard. And we got the opportunity last time to see this in action with Matthew, the author of this amazing gospel we've been going through. And we all got to hear his lengthy testimony that went like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's Matthew's testimony, Matthew 9.9. Right? And we laughed a little bit about it last time, about how Matthew's brief testimony in his own gospel, right? Especially for those of us living in the 21st century today, we miss the significance if we just think that it's a one-line testimony and there's not much to it. It just seems like a simple, Jesus said, follow me, so I did. But there's so much more there. We saw last time as we went deeper into it. We saw how Matthew was not his given name. This person, Matthew, his name was actually Levi. Levi was his given name. And this meant that his family line came down from the ancient patriarch named Levi. And that's where the Levitical priests of the Old Testament came from. You guys have spent any time in the Old Testament, you've heard about Levitical priests before. It started with Moses' brother, Aaron. And on down, all the way through the generations and generations of Jewish people, and including now Matthew and his family, these Levites would play an irreplaceable role in the Israelite community. They were felt to be like the mediators between man and God. Like God was so far out there to the Jewish believer that they needed mediators, and those were the Levites. These people would offer the sacrifices in the temples, and they led the Israelites in the ways of God. I mean, there's so much so that there's an entire chapter, at least in Exodus, about the royal garments that are to be made for Levitical priests. So I'm going to read to you all of Exodus. No, I'm just kidding. But Exodus 28, let me read for you just a little snippet of it, okay, from Exodus 28, 1 through 2. It says, Have Aaron, remember Moses' brother Aaron, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons with funny names, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. And you can go back and read all of Exodus 28 for all the details. But here's where it ends. In verse 43, it says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. Again, remember, Matthew is one of those descendants. Levi is one of those descendants. There's something shameful about that fact that he even calls himself Matthew. Right? We talked about it. Levi is his Jewish name. Matthew was his Roman name. And the Romans were the hated enemies of the Jews. Not only that, Matthew had apparently given up all those Levitical responsibilities, all the generations that had come before him and had done what Levitical priests had done up to that point. Matthew's like, I don't want any part of that. In fact, he gave up that role in order to collect the taxes for the enemy, the enemy Romans. And not only that, he was collecting on top of that extra income for himself. He was overtaxing his own people for the enemy Romans so that he could live a nice, cush lifestyle. So when Matthew now writes this gospel, when he sits down to pen this gospel, he doesn't say, and Levi was sitting at the tax collector booth and Jesus called him. He says, Matthew, Matthew, the enemy's name, Matthew was sitting at this tax collector booth. He's saying that even though he had gotten so far off the path that he didn't even recognize that he was Levi anymore, that Jesus had not forgotten him. You see, somebody in here needs to know that tonight. Somebody in here is thinking that I am so far off course. I'm that guy that just sat down. As soon as Jesus called me, I just sat down. Or I went a few steps with him and then I just sat down. Or I just decided to take another path rather than follow him and I just sat down. And Jesus, he's gone. He's gone. He's left. He's moved on from me. And that is not what Matthew is telling us. Matthew is telling us the exact opposite. He's saying, never does he take his eye off of you. Even when the crowds are there on Sunday morning worshiping his name, he loves that praise. That is sweet incense into heaven. But he hasn't forgotten you individually. That's the beauty of God. And he doesn't look at you with anger. He looks at you with redemptive love, no matter how far off course you've gotten. So let's put ourselves now in Matthew in this lofty position. He's sitting in this elevated tax collector booth at the end of the street. And all the way down at the other end of the square... He sees Jesus heal this paralytic man, right, which we looked at many verses earlier in this chapter. 
And he sees these crowds are gathering and engaging in the adoration and praise of what God has just done through Jesus. And he's probably thinking in his head, I'm, I'm of that tribe of Levi. I'm the one that's supposed to be leading these people in worship. That was supposed to be my job. But yet when God had sent me that heavenly invitation, I chose out. And I'm sure in his heart, Matthew's thinking there was no going back from that decision. That once you're out, you're always out. That's what Matthew's probably thinking in that moment. But then we see Jesus turning and looking at this man who thought he was forgotten. Who thought that there was never a chance for him sitting in the place of sin. This tax collector's booth. A place where he was seeking the honor of men from the powerful Romans. And he's probably living some sweet lifestyle out in the suburbs somewhere and he's got a fancy car and a beautiful wife and a big fat house and it's big paycheck but Matthew on the inside I probably would think was feeling pretty empty inside because anytime that we don't follow the purpose that God has put before us we always are left feeling empty on the inside amen has anyone ever felt that before where you're like I know God is calling me to do something I know God is telling me to go and say this thing to my wife which is like I'm sorry and oh my gosh I'm not gonna do it and we're like feeling empty on the inside. Oh, I know God is calling me to go to that neighbor and invite him over for dinner, but I just don't like him. God's calling you to do it, and you're not doing it, and you're feeling this emptiness inside. Matthew, and probably 10,000 times greater than that, is feeling like, I have this generational purpose that I'm supposed to be fulfilling, and these other people are doing it for me, and yet he doesn't have to feel empty anymore, right? We all will try to fill emptiness with all kinds of different things. For Matthew, it was getting the praise of the Romans and the money that came from it. But for others of us, it might be things like alcohol or drugs or pornography or greed or gossip or whatever sin you want to put into that place. It's something we're trying to fill so we don't have to think about that purpose that God has for us. Or maybe we fill it with the praise and adoration of men, you know. But in the end, we're always left feeling empty until the only thing that we are seeking is to follow him to follow the only one who can fill the void in our souls right that's the only thing that could ever completely do that the point of being filled to overflowing with the holy spirit that's the only thing that could ever make us know that we're on the right path that we're doing what god has called us to do and i love i love that matthew was called in the midst of his sinfulness right because look at this. Look at the order of things. Jesus comes up to Matthew in his place of sin, and he says to him, Matthew, follow me. He says, are you in or are you out, right? He says this to Matthew. Just take a second and imagine in your own life, in this time that you're living right now, imagine that, that sin. I mean, truly, think about that sin, that addiction in your life. You know, you know which one I'm talking about. That's the one you don't really talk about with the guys too often. You probably have never even mentioned to your wife or significant other. This is something that... You just want to hide because it's so deep and dirty in your life. The one that, you know, it, maybe it brings thoughts into your mind that you know don't belong there. Or it has your mouth, it spews words of anger towards those you love. Or maybe even physically reaching out, lashing out against those in your home. Or maybe it's the one that has you sneaking into dark places in your home when everybody's asleep and nobody knows what you're doing. But here's the beautiful truth, brothers. You see that Jesus, in that moment of that sin that you got in your mind right now, that thing that you're thinking about right now, he looks on you with eyes of love. And he's saying to you, in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your struggle, he's saying, follow me. He's saying to you that this is the day that the Lord has made. Not two hours ago, not yesterday, not 10 weeks ago, not 10 years ago, not 50 years ago when you heard that from your dad, from your teacher, from whatever. He's saying, right now, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And that sin and that struggle, it no longer defines you if you give your life completely, if you surrender all to Him, as we sang. You may not even think like, okay, uh, i got to change my maybe, or i, I, I got to change my out. Jesus is saying, listen, just, just do it right now. Follow me. Because of this good news of Jesus, we can rejoice. We can rejoice and be glad in this day. So when we decide to follow Jesus, he doesn't need us to clean ourselves up first. He starts to lovingly remove the chains that are holding us back in the sin of our lives. Because you know they're chains, guys. You know they're chains, the sins that we do, that we think that nobody knows about. He knows, and he knows that they're chains that are holding us back. And some of us, even after he has called us, and even after we think we're starting to walk, we're like, oh, bring the chains with me. 
and we're grabbing onto them, even though the shackles are off. We're grabbing those chains because we think that we still need that sin, and we get yanked backwards eventually. But hear this. When Matthew rose, when he rose in that moment, he never was going to return to that tax collector booth. That sin was gone. And that's how we need to look at our lives. When Jesus has called us out of whatever sin we find ourselves in, is we just got to let go be like, all right, God, you've got this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk. Look what it says in John 8:36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, it says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So please don't miss this gospel message tonight. This gospel, this good news is that first, he calls you. First. And then you get to choose in. And then together with him, all the other details work out. You don't have to figure out how you're going to get out of this sin that you've had. You don't have to figure out what you're going to do to make yourselves better. Oh, I tried before, God, it didn't work, and I went right back into this. God's saying, forget all that. Today, right now, I've set you free. You don't have to clean yourself up first. When the cleaning eventually does come, you never do it on your own. Jesus himself comes in to your life and starts to clean from within you. And when you respond to Jesus' call to follow him, you cannot willingly want to go back to your old ways again and still say, oh, I'm following Jesus. You've got to just let that stuff go. You can't say, hey, thanks for the cleansing. Now back to my regularly scheduled programming. Like, no, that doesn't work that way. We need to be intentional about allowing God to do his work within us and then leave behind the things that were keeping us dead in sin. Look what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. See, I can tell you from experience that recognizing the true good news is the most beautiful experience ever. That God would willingly step into the darkness of my sin and bring his light. And what is so amazing is how a changed heart impacts those around us. When they say, whoa, what is, what's happened to you? What's happened to you? Something's changed. That darkness that you had within you, it's light. What's going on? And you can reply with a Matthew-style, very short testimony to him. You can say, I chose in. And you can too. And there's the gospel. That's some great news, brothers. Amen? That no matter, no matter what you've done, you can be given a new name today. Matthew didn't have to recognize that he was actually Levi before Jesus called him. Because being called by Jesus gives you an entirely new name anyway. And that name is called. That name is redeemed. That name is child of God. Those are the names that God gives you. Whatever other name you carried, your new name comes right now in this moment. Some of you have taken the name anxious, depressed. You think, oh, well, that's just what I am. Some of you have taken the name loser or failure. Well, that's, you know, what my, my father or my wife or my boss told me. Some of you have taken on the name unforgivable or unlovable. But here's the great news. That doesn't have to be your name on the way out of here tonight. All you have to do is say to the Lord, Lord, take me. I'm leaving it all behind. I got a new name in you, and I'm going to take it. And you may not know how to pray that kind of prayer. You may never have prayed that kind of prayer before. I encourage you, then come and find a brother tonight. Don't leave here tonight the same as you came in. Let that brother speak into your heart. And if you don't know, if you don't know enough you don't know somebody well enough that you feel like, hey, I can go and I can share this thing and, 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 and not know that I'll be judged, you can come and find me. I can tell you a gazillion things that I have done in my life that I deserve the judgment that was due me, but I'm not going to have that judgment upon me anymore because the Lord has set me free and he can set you free and I want to pray 
with you tonight to set you free and start a new journey with Jesus today. But full disclosure, right? Because a lot of times when people talk about being set free, we think, okay, that's it. That's the end of the journey. But that's truly just the beginning. And full disclosure is that it gets harder, not easier, as you start to follow Jesus. Because you're going to come across some things that are going to go against the ways that the world has taught you to believe and to think. The path of following Jesus is going to take you to some uncomfortable places. Like we see in verse 10. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see, what? See, the first thing Matthew does is he invites Jesus over for dinner. You know, Matthew himself doesn't tell us exactly whose house it was, because I think he's, a, I'm getting the sense when we meet Matthew in heaven, we're going to find him to be a pretty humble guy. But Luke tells us, in Luke 5.29, the same passage uh, covered, it says, And Levi, or Matthew, made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So this is Matthew's house. Just imagine that. This house that Matthew likely purchased with all the overtaxation of his own Jewish brothers and sisters. This house that he bought essentially with his sin. He invites Jesus into that house. And he probably didn't have time to clean the house up and get it ready for Jesus. I remember when I first got married and, and my wife, she told me to get the house ready. You know, she calls it pick up the house. I don't even understand what that I'm like, pick up the house. But she says, we got to pick up the house. People are coming over. I didn't know what that meant. So I did what a good bachelor did. I took all the clothes that I had piled on the floor, and I shoved it into the closet, and I jammed the door shut. Because that, to me, cleaned up the house. But not to her. <laughs> that, didn't, that wasn't what she was expecting. But see, Matthew didn't even have time to do that in his own house. Follow me, yes. And he gets up and he goes, he says, you want to have dinner? Sure, I'll be there in a second. Jesus is there in the house. One moment, tax collector booth. Next moment, the Son of God in his messy house. And it makes me wonder, are there areas in your life that are a total mess right now? You know, areas that maybe you're even trying to avoid asking Jesus into those areas because it's just too messy right now. Lord, you definitely, you don't want to see this. Let me, let me clean it up first. Let me jam all of it in this closet and slam the door shut. We all have a tendency to do this as if Jesus, who took on flesh and became sin itself, couldn't handle our mess. Like, ridiculous. No, of course he could. And what does Jesus do upon arrival to Matthew's house? Does he comment on the messiness of the house? Does he comment on the fact that the hors d'oeuvres weren't very good, that there weren't any bacon-wrapped goodies there because they were a Jewish home? No, he doesn't say any of those things. Right? Never invite people over to your house without bacon-wrapped goodies. That's just my moral of the story. But no, but there wasn't going to be anything there in Matthew's house. But he doesn't do that when he arrives. He makes himself comfortable. He lays, reclines at the dining room table. And not just by himself does he recline there, but he... Reclines with all these tax collectors and sinners. See, Matthew got his co-workers to come and meet Jesus. And I, and I think for some of us, that's a message in itself. Matthew got his co-workers to come into his home to meet Jesus. Right? We're so uncomfortable, so many of us, with sharing our faith at work. You may even have a secular workplace where if you were to share your, your faith and apparently there's some law, you can't you know, proselytize and you'll get in trouble and all this stuff. And we make those kinds of excuses like, listen, I can't share my faith at work because I would get in trouble and I would lose my job. And to you, I say this, because God said this to me many years ago. It's found in Galatians 5. It's a very famous verse, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The verse doesn't end there, even though the Sunday school part ends there. Against such things, there is no law. There's no law against those things. You find me in your employee handbook where it says you cannot be loving, joyful, peaceful. You won't find it there. So like Matthew, I say, and I encourage all of us in this kind of side part of this story tonight. I want you to hear this. Let us overflow and our workplaces sharing the freedom that we have received from Jesus. When everyone else is angry and gossiping about that co-worker that doesn't pull their weight, that isn't doing their job, as followers of Jesus, let's serve that co-worker. Let's show him love. Let's bring him joy. Let's invite him out for coffee to learn more about him. Because in doing so, you are preaching the good news to that coworker without once breaking any law, amen? 
That's just an encouragement, like to me, to you, to all of us, that there is no law against those things. And certainly there are laws that say you shouldn't be gossiping and saying bad things about your coworker, but we don't worry about that, do we? But we should actually be worried more about what can I do to show this coworker the love of Christ. So look, Matthew, all his coworkers and his friends come to meet Jesus so they could feel the love and acceptance of Jesus too. Why? I don't know. I thought about this for a while. I was like, why, why would he do this? Like, why would he so immediately want to bring his friends and his co-workers over? Why would he want to bring these other tax collectors over? And I think that Matthew probably knew pretty clearly these people were never going to be reached in a synagogue. They weren't going to be invited to Sunday service, Saturday service back then, I'm sure, on their Sabbath day. This audience was never going to be reached there. And many of your own co-workers will never set foot in a Bible-believing church because they just don't feel welcome. They don't feel like they're supposed to be there. And God's purpose for you may very well be that you bring His church to them through you. So last time, we talked about how being a tax collector, essentially it meant that you were a traitor to your own people, that you chose these enemy Romans to associate with. Instead of remaining in the struggle with your countrymen, you decided to join the enemy instead. And we likened it to being like a Middle Eastern country coming and taking over America and demanding taxes from Americans. And other Americans, perhaps even your buddies, saying, I'm going to go and serve this Middle Eastern country, and I'm going to come against you and take your money for them. And then these people would take the names of the Middle Eastern people as their own, and they would demand more than what was required so that they could live a cush lifestyle. See, these tax collectors were not going to be invited guests to church services. They probably weren't going to be invited guests to many homes to meet many rabbis either. And we don't know who these sinners were, but we could assume that they likely had some pretty outward, obvious sins. But it's too easy to just leave it there and not just imagine the scene for a second here. I think we can learn something about Jesus if we try to put this in a modern context, right? So imagine you've just come to know Jesus, you invite him over to your house, and the people who are coming into your house to meet Jesus are Middle Eastern terrorists, the prostitutes. They're folks with their signs, fresh new signs, my body, my rights. There might even be two men in there hugging and kissing each other. These were the sinners of our time, similar to the sinners of their time. And yet, Jesus reclines at table with them. If you're not offended, you will be shortly. Okay, because what does this phrase mean, to recline at table? It means that you're there to have a relaxed moment with these sinners, have a meal together. They don't have elevated kitchen tables, picnic tables back then. They had like coffee table height tables and everybody would sit on the ground with pillows and they would recline. And you've seen the paintings of the Last Supper and all the people are laying back on each other. It's like a very close group. That's what this word anekamai, which means reclined, that's what this word truly means. And it's saying in that cultural context, these are my people. These are my buddies. These are my friends. To share a meal with them said, I identify with these people. They're mine. And it would make a Jewish rabbi or a Jewish person in general, identifying with these types of sinners, it would make them unclean. It's a big deal. And can you imagine just how scandalous it would be for Jesus to be doing this with the traitorous tax collectors and the non-deserving sinners? I mean, just think about it. Imagine if we went to a post-pops, right? And it's a Thursday night football game and the Steelers are on TV and we're all cheering and we're eating wings and whatever else at the max and we're excited and cheering on the Steelers. And one of us gets up, walks over to the table over there. It's a Steeler-Ravens game. And there's some purple-black purple uh, people over here, purple and black wearing people over here. They're Ravens fans. And one of us gets up and sits with them and starts cheering against the Steelers and starts buying them drinks. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, listen, your enemies are not my enemies. I know it's a bit of a stretch of a comparison, but I just want to give you a sense, right? Because, I mean, you guys don't understand the truest of all NFL enemies. That's the Packers. I mean, I know last week was hard, but I imagine that every year for the rest of your life. Like, that's what living as a Bears fan is. But, um, but it's like, imagine Jesus reclining at the table with people who you identify as sinners, and not just reclining, he's laughing and joking and having a great time with them. And we see now outside of this joyful moment of sinners and tax collectors and Jesus and Matthew, we see on the outside of that there are these Pharisees 
and they're outraged that Jesus is choosing to spend time with these notorious sinners. How dare? How dare Jesus share a meal with them, calling them his people? Let's see what happens in verse 11. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So remember, the Pharisees, these were the most learned people. Their job was to teach the scriptures and the law to the people of that day. They were smart folks. And if you need to know what the Bible said, you just said to the Pharisees, hey, what does Exodus 28 1 say? And they say, oh, it's about Aaron's garments. Like they would just, boom, they would know that. They spent their time memorizing God's word. They were the moral guardians of the nation. Society they knew was crumbling around them because of the sinfulness of the people of the country. It was their job to stand up and defend the sanctity of this nation. They were a Jewish nation, and they lived by the law of the Bible. And given their status, they felt superior to those obvious sinners, like tax collectors. Their job was to protect the faith and their nation from sinners and their willful defiance. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It does to me. When I think about the way Christians often talk about American, their role in American society, I feel like it sounds just like the Pharisees of back then, about how all the sinners are bringing down the moral fabric of our country, about how if the country would just pass the right laws and punish the right sinners, then we could go back to this mythical time when all was right in this country, that we Christians were so glad that God made us with just small sins, and they're not as offensive as the sins of those other people. kind of reminds me of a story in Luke 18. 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It tells us in Matthew 21, 31, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So Jesus' words. Jesus loves, loves to shake up pharisaical beliefs. He loves to shake them up back then, and he loves to shake them up tonight, right now. He says to us in this place tonight, do you think you're more righteous than those people who you are calling sinners, greater sinners than yourself? And to you, he says, the people from the other political party are actually more justified than you. To you, he says, I just had a great dinner with a great group of pro-choice lobbyists. He says to us, that LGBTQ person is entering heaven before you. Now, some of you may be feeling some moral outrage. You might be thinking, could he actually love sinners like this? To love them even before they've cleaned up their lives? To that I answer, that's why I love Jesus. I love how scandalous his love was then to the Pharisees and how offensive it is today to those who feel self-righteous. That he could love sinners so much that their hearts would eventually be changed to follow after him, that their hearts would eventually recognize that they no longer wear those chains of the sins of their life, that they can now follow after him and be the first ones ushered into the kingdom of heaven, while all of us in the crowd who are pointing fingers at them saying they are unworthy are actually the ones that are entering last. So for many of us, if we don't start getting used to following Jesus now, walking so closely down that path with him that we actually start to love sinners like he does, it's going to be really challenging when we try to explain to him that he invited the wrong people to heaven. It's going to be really challenging. I don't think he's going to care what we think. I don't think he cares now, and I don't think he's going to care then what we think about who he feels is worth loving. And yet, what will Jesus think of our advice for whom he loves to salvation. I, I, I see it here in Matthew 20. What does he think about our advice? He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? 
Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. You see, during all of the time that we spend, I'm saying this to myself, I tell you, when I write these notes down, it's like God saying this to me, and I'm like, I'll share it with the guys too, because I'm sure it'll impact you too. During all the time that we spend immersing ourselves in the politics of this world, that we hear the opinions of CNN or Fox News, we hear about them telling us who is good and who is evil. It sure does sound like eating of the fruit of an ancient tree, doesn't it? That we're plucking apples from it when we think this way. We're thinking, oh, judgment, judgment, give me more judgment. And it's not God that's giving us that fruit. It's the enemy that's giving us that fruit to eat. Brothers, while your favorite news anchor is telling you about the unlovable sinners of this world, Jesus is with those sinners. And he's having a good old time. He's laughing and loving them and having dinner with them. Because Jesus' mission is not to agree with your worldly politics. He's not there to bring condemnation upon the people that you judge. He's there telling those sinners to follow him. Because in following him, they leave it all behind, and whatever sinful darkness that they have in their soul will be destroyed by the powerful light of the Lord of Lords. Jesus' mission is to bring the soul-healing good news to everyone on earth. If you don't think it's tough yet, it's going to get tougher. Because that's not just Jesus' mission. It's for all of those who follow him as well. Because did you catch who else was with him when he was with those tax collectors and sinners having dinner? I never did until this last week. The disciples were there. And his disciples were a combination of many different styles of political thinking. There were liberals and there were conservatives. There were poor. There were rich. There were learned. There were uneducated. There was all kinds of a mix within those disciples. And they are all there hanging out with Jesus and the sinners and these tax collectors reclining at table. And they're not there to tell the sinners about how bad of sinners they are. They're there to tell them about the stories of how Jesus called them as well from their own darkness. That's our job, brothers. That's our job. So many of us have hated the sin but forgotten to love the sinners. And last time when we talked, we talked about how following Jesus down this narrow path was going to bring us to some challenging places. Because Jesus is on a mission to bring good news to sinners that you don't want to love. And he expects you to join him in that journey. So are you in or are you out? And there's no shame with an honest out response. But if you're not feeling like you're in, then don't say you're in. You're like, listen, I'm not ready. Because that's the point where we can start. You start with the honesty to say, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not ready to do this. I can't love sinners like that. I can't accept a Jesus who would love sinners like that. That's not for me just yet. And that's fine where you are. But let me tell you, I want to know about that. I want to know because I honestly want to pray for you. Because the greatest thing for me is when I hear rescue stories. I love when people come and say, uh-uh, I didn't believe in that God you were talking about, and whatever reason, I, I can't trust him. And then I say, all right, well, I'm just going to pray about that. Because I see God working in lives. As people say, no, no, that's not for me. He could never love a lesbian. He could never love somebody. No, 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 that's too much of a sin for God to love. And then six months later, one year later, five years later, I run into that person and they say, you know what? Actually, that was a good place for me to start, to be honest with God. Because then God started to show me how much he loves. So no matter where you are, no matter who you are tonight, know this, you are a sinner saved by grace, redeemed by the great physician, Jesus Christ. No more and no less. And once we get that message in our head, once we truly believe that, then we got to start making some space because the sick are going to start coming. God's going to start sending the sick our way. It says in Matthew 9, 12, he says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Yes, Jesus, the great physician. He's not the great physician because he's really good at taking like appendix out in the, in the OR or fixing hernias or fixing ACLs. No, he is, he is not an OR surgeon. What he is, is the greatest healer of the soul. And the sick that he is reaching out to, I'm sure there's physically ill people among those six, yes, but it's those who are in need of spiritual healing. Just like the paralyzed man from earlier in this chapter, Jesus recognized that that man needed spiritual healing even more than he needed physical healing. And there is no healing that would be coming if Jesus didn't immerse himself 
immerse himself, surround himself with the sick. And this is what we're supposed to be like as disciples. This is what our churches are supposed to be like. This is what God had intended for his church, is that we are supposed to be a place of healing. When people come into our doors, we're supposed to offer them the healing. The spiritually sick need to be entered and be ministered to by Christ's hands and feet. That's us. But somewhere along the lines, most churches have become a holy club. Everybody pretends to have it all together. We get our nice clothes on. We're not sinners in this place. Oh, no, we're not sinners. And then, if you think about it, certain sinners are most definitely not welcome, right? And I ask these questions rhetorically. You think about them in your own mind. If an illegal immigrant were to come through the door of your church, would your church show them the love of Christ? If a gay couple came into your church, would they be escorted out? If a known abortion clinic provider came to the church, maybe even wearing a shirt, you know, about what he did for a job, would he be allowed to remain in the building? So these questions I ask. How are these sinners going to know the love of Christ if all they get is the hatred of his followers? Believers, we are to know one thing. One thing. I was a sinner in need of rescue. And my Savior came and rescued me before I did a single thing to deserve it. I was a sinner in need of rescue. And the great rescuer came and gave me the rescue that I needed before I could ever deserve it. And so now I love my Savior. And you know what he tells me to do? He tells me to love other sinners in the same way that he loved me. And one day, brothers, mark my words, one day I'm going to open a church and I'm going to have a big sign out in the front of the building and it's going to say, Sinners Welcome! Because that is what our churches should look like. The spiritually sick need those who have been healed by the great physician to bring that healing to others. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's look at verse 13. Jesus says now to these Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So as if these Pharisees were not incensed enough by Jesus' actions, by hanging out and having dinner with the tax collectors and sinners, now he tells these very learned people who have more knowledge of the Bible than anyone else that they need to go and learn. And he gives them a verse that they probably would have read before in Hosea 6.6. It says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, the entire Bible is a progressive revelation of God's understanding where his people are and giving them more and more of him until he completely reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Right? Because God couldn't show up with Adam and Eve in the garden and, and, and go right into it. And so I have a son. His name is Jesus. He's going to become, he's going to rescue you on the cross. And, and there's this Holy Spirit. And he's a little crazy. Just be careful. You know what I'm saying? He's not, he's, he's, he's not, he couldn't do that. Right? Adam and Eve weren't ready for that. Moses wasn't ready for that. These, the, they needed to be where they were. And so God started them off with a very intricate kind of sacrificial system. Lots of dead animals and headless birds along the way in the Old Testament. But as time passed, God started to show them that what he wanted was a heart of love for him and for others. More than their ability to do all the sacrifices that were there in the first five books of the Bible, he starts to show them that, okay, that was then. Now I'm going to start moving you guys towards this gospel message of love. I'm not going to read all these verses for you from the Old Testament, but each of these verses from 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 51, Micah 6.6, 6, they're all about I once told you that it was all about sacrifice, but it's not. It's actually all about love and mercy for each other. And even though the Pharisees knew all these words from Hosea, from all these other uh, verses that I just gave you, and there's plenty more where that came from, they weren't putting them into action. They knew them, but they weren't able to put them into action. They were content, these Pharisees, standing on the outside, pointing fingers at other people's sins because they weren't committing those sins. But they refused to offer mercy and grace to sinners as they were commanded. They were too wrapped up on putting on a show of doing all the right things. And it's easy for us today to look back at the Pharisees and see all the ways that they missed the point. But the challenge I want to leave all of us with tonight is this. Are we doing it any better than those Pharisees? Do we treat the sinful people in our world that we see with contempt or with love? Do we demonize their sins over our own sins? 
because we're not likely to commit their sins, so it's good. We can demonize their sins. Are we doing that? Do we find ourselves praising God that at least we're not like them? Do we define ourselves as righteous and no longer in need of God's grace? He already saved me. I don't, I'm good. I'm good now. Do we become self-righteous and judgmental when we find somebody who's LGBTQ or using pronouns that don't fit their gender or attending the My Body, My Choice rally or deliberately they're staying unemployed so they can live off government handout or illegally they're crossing the border, whatever the news talks about these days. When we see those people, are we saying, ah, sinners? Are we pointing our fingers at them? If so... I ask you, have we become so wrapped up in our own righteousness that we've forgotten that we too are sinners saved only by grace? Have we become so wrapped up in our own hatred of enemies that we've forgotten that Jesus commands that we are to love and serve those very enemies? It is specifically that self-sacrificial, other-oriented love of enemies that defines us defines us as followers of Christ. That is what defines us. Our righteousness is not what defines us. It's our other-oriented, self-sacrificial, cross-like love for our enemies that defines us as followers of Christ. Matthew 5, 44-45. You guys have heard me do this one a million times. I love this verse. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's clear. That's from the mouth of Jesus Christ. You want to be a son of my Father in heaven? You want to be with us? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. It's not an easy road to love sinners like this, like Jesus loved them. But it's the only road that's an option for those who say they follow him. So I ask you, can we start to reach out in love to the sinners around us? Even if it means that other Christians are going to get upset at us for loving sinners in that way. They're going to start to question whether we're actually one of those sinners because we're having so much fun. We're laying back, reclining, having dinner with these sinners. If so, if we're ready for that, if we're ready for other Christians to start to question our love for other sinners, we'll be in good company. Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They thought he was a glutton and a drunkard, Jesus, because he was hanging out so much, having so much eating and a lot of drinking around, I'm sure, and, and Jesus was there with them, and they thought he was with them so much that he was one of them. So I say in this pops off season that's coming soon, I'm going to give you a few tangible things that we could do, perhaps, during this pops off season. Maybe there's a homeless person that you pass every day, on your way to work or when you're going to church or whatever. There's a homeless person that you pass every day and you have a tendency to look the other way. I ask you, will you buy him breakfast or give him a bottled water from your car? Or perhaps there's a prison maybe on your way to work or maybe within a few minutes of your house. Will you join the chaplain and do a monthly Bible study with these people? Or there are thousands of refugees and illegal immigrants maybe even too here in this city of Pittsburgh. Will you invite them to your church? Or there are families in the city right now who can't afford clothes or food. Would you partner with a Christian ministry, maybe Light of Life or Outreached Arms, and serve these people? If you've been around the church at all, you perhaps know the passage that I'm referencing here. It's in Matthew 25, 35 and 36. For I was hungry, Jesus says, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. To all of us tonight, King Jesus is saying this, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Again, are we in or are we out? Are we ready to do this? Are we ready to say, throw all this worldly system behind and say, what I want to do is I want to serve Jesus. Well, there's where you go to serve Jesus. Going to church on Sunday is not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. Coming to Pops is not bad. But I'm saying it doesn't define you as a Christ follower. What defines you as a Christ follower is are you walking down that road with him? And he tells us what that road looks like. It takes us to these places. The great physician wants us to take what he has taught us and actually do it. It doesn't matter what the predicament is of the person that we're serving. If they have flesh and breath, we love and serve and we are called to recline at table with them and identify with them. 
And for some of you, you're going to say to this, no thanks, that's not what I signed up for, not when I became a Christian. You raise your hand maybe, you got to get out a hell-free card that day, that's good enough for you. But that's not Christianity, that's Americanity. And it breaks my heart. Because the road of, of, of Christianity, it begins at the cross. The road for Americanity, it begins with ourselves. And followers of Jesus always follow a cross before they follow the political party or the flag. They always follow the cross. And I know that these words are hard. I know that they're hard. They're hard for me to hear. But as always, I encourage you, seek the words of Jesus yourself. And find anything that contradicts this idea that he loves sinners this much, his humanity this much. But it's past time for us Christians in America to realize that there is an amazing adventure and a purpose that God has in store for each and every one of us. And your get out of hell free card is just a great byproduct of a big plan that he has in store. It's not the goal. It's just the beginning. It's a byproduct. There was an antibiotic that came out, I don't know, 20 years ago. It's called azithromycin. You may have heard of it. Z-Pak, you know, it's called. A lot of people take it. It's, you know, it's used so much that it's pretty much worthless now as an antibiotic. But whatever. So, but one of the things when it first came out, the way the drug reps would sell it was that not only is this an antibiotic, it's got this great side effect. And that side effect was it's anti-inflammatory at the same time. So you're giving it to someone to treat their pneumonia or whatever you're doing. And, oh, by the way, there's this great side effect, too. How often do you get to hear that, a great side effect? And that's kind of how I look at it. When we think about what God has done, that he came and he destroyed sin itself, the entire structure of sin, Jesus came to destroy, it says in 1 John 3, 8, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And, oh, by the way, that also means you get to go to heaven. But that's not the goal. The goal is that, oh my gosh, you've just destroyed the works of the devil. Now I get to go tell people about that. Does that make sense? It's a side effect. The get out of hell free is a side effect. It's not the big picture that we should be looking at. God will never force us to follow him. He invites us. And it's up to us whether we want to be like Pharisees or be like Christ. And I don't know about you, brothers, but I long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because a servant does what the master calls him to do. And he wants us to love as God loves. And so will you do that indiscriminately to everyone you meet? Because if you say yes to that tonight, in this place right now, this entire region gets changed by Pop's men. Because down this hill will roll the mercy and the sacrifice and the judgment of God will be beautiful to see because it's going to be that I love. All rolls down this hill like a mighty stream from this place. Praise God that he wants to use us to impact this place, to impact this region. So we put down our judgment, we put on our love, and then when we come back together in the spring, we share the stories of what God has done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kishore, for another fantastic message. Gentlemen, or ladies, if you're listening, we are all called to love every single person on this planet regardless of their baggage, regardless of their sin, regardless of their sexual preference, their religious preferences, their political status, it doesn't matter. We are called to love every single person, just like Jesus did. Thank you for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you, and we will catch you next week.